welcome everyone to our Power of Public Speaking podcast about speech anxiety. But first, we all want to thank um, Tyler Poteet and the POPS team for envisioning this great way to connect a communication with students, with teachers, with practitioners, and for allowing us the opportunity. Uh, my name is Dr. Susie Prentice. I'm a distinguished lecturer at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I am joined with two dear friends who are also amazing scholars and educators, and I will let them each introduce themselves. Stephanie, do you wanna go first? Sure. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Kelly. I am an associate professor in the Department of Business Information Systems and Analytics at the Willie A. Deese College of Business and Economics at North Carolina A&T State University. Thank you so much, Stephanie and Josh. Hello, everyone. I'm Josh Westwick, Associate Professor and Associate Director of the School of Communication and Journalism at South Dakota State University. And um, we have decided collectively that we are going to run this sort of like a conversation where we have highlighted a few things that we think are, are useful and salient and helpful. And um, the first thing we wanted to talk a little bit about is exactly what is speech anxiety and what is communication apprehension. And Josh, do you want to start us off on this? Sure. Well, I think it's important that we, first of all, distinguish the difference between communication apprehension and speech anxiety or public speaking anxiety, right? Because public speaking anxiety is really a subset of the broader context of communication apprehension. And so when we're talking about communication apprehension, we're really talking about an individual's level of fear or anxiety or nervousness associated with either real or anticipated communication with another person or group of people, right? When we talk specifically about public speaking anxiety or speech anxiety, that is either situational or trait, but really focused on this idea of speaking in front of an audience. Both events are significant, especially for students who are enrolled in introductory or advanced level public speaking and communication courses. Excellent. Josh, thank you so much. Yeah, that, I think you really touched on a really important point too in your definition, and that was the real or anticipated. Can you maybe expand a little bit on that or give us an example or a story of, of what that means? Right. So the realness of it would be anxiety that is associated with the communication happening in real time, right? So a student enrolled in a public speaking class who's in the process of delivering that speech in front of their audience, and they start to feel maybe shortness of breath or sweatiness, uh, 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 sweaty palms, right? Um, or feelings of uneasiness while they're speaking. But we can also have those same feelings when we are in the preparation process of preparing for a speech or thinking about a presentation that we're to present for others or even preparing for a podcast that we're <laughs> recording with our, our peers, right? Um, and so it can happen in the preparation process, even just thinking about the act of engaging in communication and public speaking or can happen in the process of actually doing it in real time. Excellent, thank you for that. And Stephanie, I know you've done a lot of work too on like math anxiety and anxiety that exists in other realms. And, and I know there are some similarities and differences. Can you kind of tell people or, or share a little bit about what this anxiety looks and feels like for us? 
Certainly. So one of the things you have to remember about anxiety, no matter where it comes from, be it math anxiety or public speaking anxiety, it's a natural biological process. Our limbic system is the part of our brain that stores that fight or flight instinct. And scientists like to jokingly call our limbic system the lizard part of our brain because it's the oldest and most unevolved part of our brain. And that limbic system, when it perceives that we're being threatened, just starts pumping us full of adrenaline. And that's so that we can physically overpower or run away from whatever this threat is. And that worked great in a world in which most of our threats were physical, when we needed to outrun the bear, for example. <laughs> but now we live in a world in which most of our threats are social. So when I am giving a speech, when I'm preparing to give a speech that I know is going to affect my grade, it's going to affect my potential for promotion, it's going to affect whether or not I'm embarrassed when the speech is over. These are now the social threats that our body has not learned to have a different self-preservation response to. So we still get pumped full of adrenaline. And we have, as Josh said, the sweaty palms, the shortness of breath, the racing heart, because we have no way to burn it when the physical activity is speaking. And the reason that is so detrimental and the reason we see these anxieties come across as lack of confidence is because our working memory, which is our in the moment cognitive processing power, we're having to allot our working memory to controlling those anxiety symptoms. So I might be perfectly capable of giving a wonderful presentation and you'd be unable to tell how much I prepared or how good I could give this presentation because I have no working memory resources left to be adaptive and to answer questions because I'm dedicating all of it to keeping you from saying how nervous I am. Stephanie, that was great. And as I'm listening to you, I remembered years ago of a student who, like you said, was so capable. He goes to the front of the class, he gets to the podium and he said, good morning, I am. And he paused and he blanked. And the look on his face was horrific. And I remember telling him, go out in the hall, it's okay. But I have used that example time and time again because we know who we are. But at that moment, that, that flight, fight or flee moment, our brain just kind of goes into autopilot and we may forget our name. And it's so common. It's so much more common than most students especially realize in that moment. And yeah, that's another, oh, go ahead, Josh. I just want to talk about how common it is. And I think it's important for us to share some of those statistics, right? And recognizing that between 60 to 70% of our population, this is even higher amongst collegiate students, experience some either moderate to moderately high level of anxiety when placed into a public speaking situation or context. So it's not surprising um, that we have students who have that um, need to flee the situation, right? But I do think it's so important for our audience, especially those students who are listening today, to recognize that what you're likely feeling is a feeling that is shared amongst a majority of your classmates and not that uh, not something that is unusual, right? Um, and if you have been that student who has run out of the room uh, because you were overcome with the anxiety or emotions and you didn't want your audience to see that, know that you're not alone. I have, I have chased politely folks down the hall who have walked out of the classroom. I have gone into uh, when appropriate restrooms or other offices to help 
calm people down and talk to them about what they're feeling and reassure them that it's going to be be okay. And there are ways and there are solutions to manage what you're feeling. Yeah. And that, and that's wonderful, Josh. Again, that's such an important point that you talk about the managing because speech anxiety and communication apprehension, it's not like we want them, you know, to fully go away or that they can go away or in a class in a semester, we're going to help people make it all go away. It's really about managing and about empowerment. And that's really what the three of us wanted to talk about today was that um, this is normal. It is natural. Everybody's experiencing it to some degree or another. And yet we can all effectively manage it so that we can empower ourselves and each other to share our stories. And so, Josh, you mentioned one of the more common myths, and that is I'm the only one. So as, as students, as professionals, we sit in rooms and classrooms, whether physically or on Zoom, and we look at people and we're like, I'm the only one that feels nervous. And, and as Josh mentioned, with the research and statistics, that is, that is not the case. We, those of us who have speech anxiety, we outnumber. <laughs> we are uh, in any classroom, in any place, there are more of us. Um, Stephanie, what are a couple of the other myths that we have all heard as teachers and that we can help um, kind of debunk a little bit? I think one of the most common is that we are afraid that our symptoms, our visible symptoms of speech anxiety are going to make it look like we don't care. We're afraid that we're going to do a poor job and therefore our teacher or our boss or whoever we're feeling anxious about seeing this is going to think we didn't prepare. But the reality is that you couldn't have activated those self-preservation instincts if you didn't care. So there are very few things that you can demonstrate to show how much you care more than having speech anxiety symptoms. But on the other hand, I think that one of the other myths that's very common is that everybody can tell how nervous I am. Everybody can see this, but actually from an audience perspective, when someone has all this extra adrenaline, I'm seeing them being super enthusiastic and engaged and is talking fast and loud and making big hand gestures. And to me, most often that doesn't look like they're nervous at all. It just looks like they are really passionate about what they're speaking about. You know, I can't tell you the number of times when I have been in the classroom and we're debriefing a set of speeches that have been presented on a given day. And you say to the students, well, how, how did you do? Right. And the students said, oh, it's terrible. I was so nervous. I was shaking the whole time. I couldn't, you know, and the audience response to that is what I had, I had no idea. I, I couldn't tell that you were nervous. You seemed really excited and passionate and empowered about your topic. Right. And so I do think it's so important that we understand that we might be feeling that, but that's not always what our audience is focused on or even recognizing or interpreting when we're watching that speech uh, in that given moment. Yeah, that is, that is so important. And I think this is another one of, of the myths is that the audience is against me. A, a lot of students feel like um, the audience is judgmental, is picking up on every little fault. And I think that is us as instructors, and it was part of that audience, as well as those of us when we're in a professional setting, like at a conference. Um, but when we debrief this in class, and I ask students, what are you thinking when someone else is presenting? You know, sometimes they say things like, well, I'm not really paying attention because I'm worried about my own speech. <laughs> and we're like, okay, but can you try to pay attention? 
Um, but usually they say things like, I thought they were doing such a good job, or I could tell they were a little nervous. I was cheering for them to succeed. And so this idea of the, of the bad audience, we make up the audience. And so once we kind of flip that role and see ourselves and realize the audience supports me, that's another one of those myths that when we do kind of tear it down and build it back up, it actually can be a source of empowerment and connection rather than a source of fear. That's Do so we have cool. other myths that we want to explore a little bit? I would pass on, you know, in addition to the myths about what we're feeling and, and our perceptions of the audience, I think there are a number of myths related to how we can best treat or overcome our fears associated with communication apprehension and public speaking that we should probably take just a second to dispel, right? And I think for a lot of people, you maybe heard the common myth that the best way to overcome your speech anxiety is to just imagine your audience naked while you're speaking, right? Which of course is um, certainly not a practice that I have engaged in or found any success in and not one that I would recommend that others um, try either. Um, in fact, I, I think when you engage in a behavior like that, you're really causing more harm to yourself and your presentation than you are in benefit. Um, I, I've shared this before, but I'll also share it here in trying to figure out where did this come from, right? <laughs> could be actually, the myth could be traced back to an episode um, of the Brady Bunch, um, where one of the characters is preparing for a school debate and the other character offers this as a piece of advice. So just imagine the audience naked and, and you'll be fine. And now it's sort of part of our, our pop culture, right? But there are other common myths that people um, believe can be helpful that also are detrimental, such as um, using alcohol before a presentation to calm nerves, memorizing the presentation and trying to recite it uh, verbatim, avoiding eye contact, which of course prevents you from having meaningful connections um, and really establishing a strong rapport um, with your audience. Um, and, this, and, and tie back to some of the other ideas, this idea that introverts cannot be effective uh, public speakers, right? I am an introvert in my day-to-day -day life, right? I've suffered from communication apprehension and public speaking anxiety for my almost entire life, right? I play an extrovert at work. I have learned how to deliver speeches because it is a key component of my work. And it's actually the reason that I found myself into this um, career. Um, but I have grown and developed those skills based on tried and tested strategies um, that can allow us to be effective as, commuter, as communicators. I've not relied on, on these myths that I think many of us have. Um, or, or are susceptible to. So um, I know today we're going to talk about going forward some different strategies and techniques that can be used to really allow you to be effective in a public speaking situation, in a business meeting, in communicating in dyadic situations to really allow you to feel comfortable and empowered in those speaking moments. So I have a question for you two about myths related to public speaking. This comes from a personal experience, you know, as Josh just talked about, sometimes you had that one experience that kind of set the tone. Well, my original teaching career started in math. And so when I switched over to communication, I sought out a lot of advice from the experts on how to help my students, because everybody told me that 
the public speaking anxiety was going to be the thing that I would have to deal with the most. And it was recommended to me by several outstanding educators that for the first couple of speeches in public speaking, if I wanted to help my students, I should get a chair out and pull it to the front of the class a little before the front row of students. And that way the students could practice their beginning speeches by making eye contact with just me. Because as a teacher, I got a little more endurance to really make good eye contact and smile and give nonverbals for the entire hour and a half or three hours or however long that lab is in which they're giving speech. So they're not disheartened by seeing their peers check out sometime. But I have not done that since my first semester. I had a unique first experience doing this. I did what I was recommended to do. I pulled my chair to the front of the room and I had everybody else even sit one row behind me so that the students would really, it, they could pretend that it was just having a conversation with me. And when the very first speeches and again, this was before I had the knowledge to make a list of things students weren't allowed to bring to class as visual aids. One of the very first speeches I had, I saw a young lady pulled out a can of aerosol hairspray. And I thought, oh, she's going to do a speech about, you know, fixing your hair for prom or something like that. I didn't see the lighter. And so when her speech started, she pulls out the hairspray, pulls out the lighter and poof, turbo engines. And the only thing I remember after that giant ball of flame flashing towards my face is a student tapping my wrist and going, Professor Kelly, Professor Kelly, Professor Kelly, somebody should probably call the hospital because I was down on the floor on my back smelling something horrendous that it turned out to be my singed off eyebrows. And so I have never had the courage to actually do that again. And I'd like to hear from the veterans, is that a myth? Is that not something we should be doing? Or should I really try to go back to sitting up front with my students again? I, I'm having a, a hard time responding because I'm still imagining this situation in, in the classroom. And I was here being like, what would I do, right? Assuming there was there's a syllabus policy or multiple policies that resulted from this experience? Oh my, the things that students are not allowed to bring into class, the list just gets longer every semester. No live animals, nothing with the flame. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a new story and one that I'm probably going to have to share with my colleagues here. So thank you for, for giving us that uh, nugget, if you will, uh, this morning. Um, you know, the technique that you've described is not one that I have used before. However, as you were describing what you were doing, and Susie, maybe you can comment on this too, I was kind of taken back to this idea of um, limited and gradual exposure to stimuli that provide the source of the anxiety, right? And to me, that's really kind of where you were at. Like for this assignment, we're just going to have you try this. And for the next assignment, we're going to expand beyond that. And really what we have tried to do at South Dakota State University with our entire course design for our introductory communication course is really we've tried to infuse these um, strategies that we know are successful in helping students overcome their anxiety, right? So we've infused obviously skills training, which is one of the most important things that we can do to help students um, reduce their public speaking anxiety. We have infused elements of um, cognitive modification into the course design. Um, and then also through our assignments, we have this idea of um, gradual exposure to different elements, right? And this idea that 
the assignments throughout the course of the semester get a little bit longer in time, that the uh, rigor of the assignments expands over the course of the semester, um, that the first assignment is very informal and casual, requires no research, uh, but as we go throughout the semester, it changes and we add different elements and different areas of significance, right? So in our course design, when we start out, we don't, we're not talking about delivery, right? Elements of delivery or language. We're talking about basic fundamentals of organization. And as we go through the semester, we fold in those, those activities. In my experience, really been the idea of the delivery that is really the factor that really incites the anxiety. So we bring that on later, right? So I do think there is probably some um, truth to, to the activity, although I could see some scholars arguing that, you know, by just having them focus on you, they're ignoring the rest of, of the audience. And I do want to be mindful of that. So I would just encourage everyone to think about, you know, how do we gradually expose the students to the stimuli that's causing the anxiety over the course of the semester, knowing that there's there's numerous studies that talk about the success of doing doing so. Yeah, and if I can um, expand on Josh's just a minute, um, the scaffolding, Josh, that you're talking about, the starting small and then building, we know that is just a great pedagogical approach across the board, but I think especially in speeches, if we try to identify one or two things and have our students identify one or two things that they can work on each time, not all of it. I mean, think about our rubrics sometimes. They're, they're multi-layered and multi-dimensional. It's a lot. And if you just focus on a couple. So to, to circle back to what you were saying, Stephanie, I did something very similar, except that I sat directly at the back of the room, that I was the clear line. So if the student didn't talk to anyone else, they were talking to me. And then over time, I'd say, okay, how about this next presentation? You try to favor the left side of the room or the right side of the room. I remember one semester in particular, I asked uh, the students did peer feedback. And as I was looking it over before giving it back to the students, I noticed consistently that a student was being marked by some as this student had great eye contact. And then a significant other group was saying about that same student, I didn't feel like I was, they looked at me at all. And at first I'm just, you know, going through it. And then finally something clicked. And I'm like, wait a minute, there is something significantly wrong here. And so I laid out on my living room floor and I put the responses where they were and they basically mirrored the classroom layout. And so what was happening is the students were comfortable with one side of the classroom and the students who were evaluating on the other were like, hello. <laughs> I'd like you to look at me. And then I realized that that was just part of the scaffolding that we were working on feeling comfortable with one side of the room before we were comfortable for the whole side. And I would repeat what Josh said that I'm sure there's some scholarly work or even practical work that talks about, you know, scanning, looking ahead of everybody and kind of doing the old typewriter mode where you just kind of scan across and come back and scan across. But I think if, if we truly want this to be a genuine experience, we tend to look at where we feel comfortable. And then because of we develop that comfort, we then are able to expand our vision. So I think in that way, that would be a really, a really great approach for us as instructors or practitioners to take for presentation, even something like an interview. You might feel comfortable talking to one interviewer, 
And you have to build up your confidence to talk to like a panel of interviewers. And if we're all mindful of that, I think that that would let us help one. That's great advice. Thank you so much. Stephanie, jo uh, Josh um, talked about some other tips and I know you have some tips. I think as, as we kind of wrap up our, our podcast, this is kind of the nuggets we want to leave everybody with. So Josh, I'm going to circle back to you because I know you have other tips, many, many, uh, <laughs> um, but Stephanie, do you want to share a few of your tips that you have for us? Well, the strategy that I focus on more than anything else for managing public speaking anxiety or math anxiety or anything else is deep breathing. As long as we continue to have those shallow breaths, we are continuing to send a system to our limbic system that the threat is still here. And as soon as we take some deep breaths, that's a signal to our brain that goes, okay, it's gone. And so even though that's not going to clear our body of all the adrenaline that we didn't need, it is going to cause our limbic system to stop giving us more. So at that, from that point on, our symptoms are not going to get worse. And another nice thing about the deep breathing is that it's not as obvious to the audience, like your anxiety is not as obvious to the audience. Your deep breathing is not as obvious to the audience as you think it is. So if you feel yourself starting to have those symptoms, whether it be in a meeting or a class presentation, stopping and taking two deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth, that's going to do a world of good in terms of making sure you don't feel progressively worse as the presentation goes along. That is wonderful. And we know there's, there's a lot of, of research on the importance of meditation, yoga, deep breathing. I, I know our colleague, Karen Kangas Dwyer talks about diaphragmatic breathing. And all of that is just a great way to also get us in tune with our body in a positive way. Because for most of us, the reaction anxiety, we get mad at it. Like, why is my body doing this to me? Why am I feeling this anxious? And yet our body is also the reason why we're able to share our amazing stories and share the knowledge we have. And so those deep breathings let us connect in a positive way. So that's wonderful, Stephanie. Thank you, Josh. Just add to, to, to Stephanie's point that that would be my number one, right? Like that's where we have to start is with the, the deep, the deep breathing. Right. And I think to be mindful, you can do that anywhere. You're walking to your business meeting. You can engage in that. You're starting to feel anxious. You're sitting in your desk waiting to um, deliver your speech rather than sitting there trying to remember what your first main point is. Listen to the speaker in front of you and engage in those deep breathing exercises, right? We know it's going to slow things down and help you gain your focus and get you in the right mindset to, to move forward, right? Um, I also think there are a number of other strategies that we can use to, to help us really get to a place where we ultimately are going to feel comfortable. And, and the first one, I think is so obvious and it's that we need to practice, right? And tied to practice is advanced preparation, right? In when it comes to um, people who are feeling um, high levels of anxiety related to any type of communication, right? Procrastination is not necessarily our friend. So we do want to be sure that we are preparing in advance, right? Doing the work, the paperwork that needs to be done way before we actually have to engage in that communication activity. And then if it's an activity that like public speaking that requires practice, we need to take the time to actually practice engaging in it, right? And that doesn't necessarily 
mean that we're just practicing in our heads. I hear that from my students often. Well, how much time did you spend practicing? Well, I went through it four times in my head. Okay, that's, that's great, but you're not delivering it in your head when you come to the classroom, right? So um, engaging in practice that is simulated to the actual environment and what you're gonna communicate. If you can go to the classroom, go practice it there. Ask some of your friends, your best friends, or even your parents to listen. Um, you're going to feel more anxious delivering in front of the people who are close to you than the students in your classroom. So put yourself in a situation that creates more anxiety, should help you feel more comfortable when you're ultimately delivering it in, in the classroom. And things like sleeping and getting a good night's sleep and making sure that we're eating appropriately on the day when we have those presentations is also important. I have to tell you on a side note, I've had in just the last few years, we've had a couple of students physically pass out um, during, their, during their speech day on campus. And of course, everyone's initial reaction is, oh my gosh, the anxiety was overwhelming. Well, it turns out in two of the three situations, the students didn't eat and then donated blood on campus. So they had their odds stacked against them, right? So just making sure that we're taking care of ourselves, we're thinking ahead about what's coming up, really setting ourselves up so we can be successful when we need to be successful. If that's in the classroom, giving a speech or a team presentation or job, sales pitch, whatever it is, there are easy steps that we can do to prepare ourselves for success. And, and when we're preparing for success, that also means that we're visualizing that success, right? That we're saying, yes, I can be successful. I am, I am good, I am set, I am prepared. I know what I'm doing. I am going to do well, can make a huge difference. Susie, uh, other thoughts from you? You can see me nodding. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, all that, you, that both of you said is so true that that calming breathing, that being prepared, that positive mindset, these all contribute and put us in a position to be successful. And I think the thing that I would add that that sort of is, is my lead in that encompasses all that we said is see a presentation as a conversation. I think the minute we hear words, speech, public speaking, presentation, our anxiety just goes up because there is some expectation of perfection or an expectation of this performance. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a person communicating with other people. And the best way we do that, that has the most long-term benefit for ourselves and others, if when we are authentic. So as you both know, I talk a lot with my hands. If I was in a speech situation and told not to use my hands, it would be really, really difficult for me. Could I do it? Well, sure, because I've been doing this a really long time. Would it be authentically who I am? No. And do I need to learn to use my hands in a way that isn't super distracting? Well, yeah. So that being our authentic selves and sharing conversations, to me, that reframing is one of the most empowering things we can do to our students. Because that does help when we've done the deep breathing, when we're prepared, that anxiety is still going to come. And how we can help with that is to be like, well, I've got this. This is just a conversation with me. And yeah, okay, 20 people at once. But I can't have a conversation with each of them individually. That would take like two days. I don't have the time for that. So we're going to do this. And I'm going to be myself. And I know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to do great. And I'm going to learn from the experience. And if we can look at it in that way, 
it then becomes something that's within each of our wheelhouse. And I will say that's a final myth, I think, that we all know, but we haven't stated yet, is that only certain people can give great presentations. Josh mentioned being an introvert. So we think that you have to be engaging and charming, just full of personality. All of us, every single one of us has it within us to share a meaningful and important story. And if we as teachers foster that, if we as professionals encourage that from our colleagues, and if we as students keep that in mind, I think that will help us effectively manage our speech anxiety better. That's great advice. Do either of you have advice that you give students for managing anxiety when they're working online rather than face-to-face? I know that Susie has this great chapter that she wrote in 2019 on communication apprehension online, and she talks about the importance of knowing the tech and knowing what could come up. If you're on Zoom and you're used to WebEx, for example, you need to take some time to read about Zoom so you know what the difference between a reaction and a raise hand is and things like that. And that, you know, I think that's a really great piece of advice for online speech anxiety, because if you start seeing pictures that you don't know what they are, that's just going to make things worse. Is there anything else you two advise for the online versus face-to-face speeches? I think like any communication uh, situation, you have to prepare for the possibilities, right? And even the obscure possibilities. And I'm going to share an example, a personal example. Um, about uh, a month ago, I had a, a very important interview that was occurring on Zoom, right? And I, because of my background in communication and knowing how I feel and the feelings that of anxiety that often appear, um, made sure that I was prepared, right? I had a backup computer ready to go because I thought, what if what if something happens with my computer, right? So I was thinking ahead. And I even remember thinking uh, to myself at home in the morning of, of, of my interview, you know, well, what do I do if, um, you know, there's a fire alarm or a fire drill during my interview, you know, and I kind of been like, oh, that, that would never happen. Well, during my interview, during the public forum session, um, the fire alarm went off in my building on campus um, and um, I had to stop <laughs> during the middle of the Zoom meeting and, and leave for a few minutes. So we had to evacuate um, the building, right? And so I remember in that moment being like, okay, you just, you, you have to practice what you preach, right? Stay calm, stay focused, right? Fortunately, um, the, uh, the alarm ended. I was able to come back into uh, the building, everyone was on the Zoom call. I hopped back onto Zoom. I, of course, made a little bit of a joke because humor is one way that we can break the ice and help also uh, reduce our anxiety. I said, just give me a second to get a drink of water. And I picked up and I jumped back in, right? Um, in retrospect, that ability to overcome um, was was probably, uh, you know, a highlight of the event and I had several people contact me and say, wow, that was really impressive. You didn't seem really uh, phased by that. Um, and I was, uh, but I relied on my training, right? And I relied on what I know about overcoming um, stress and anxiety and I put those into, into play, right? And so I think 
Stephanie, then to go back to your question, it's like thinking about the possibilities, thinking about what could happen, and just taking a few moments to recognize that hiccups happen, life happens, um, but how we're going to or we can overcome and adapt um, to those those situations. That's really great advice. Yeah, and, and, and Stephanie, first of all, thank you for mentioning the article. You were instrumental in helping me design it with your background in technology. So thank you so much for that. And to piggyback off what Josh said, and also what I think all of us have experienced in the past year is that idea of resiliency. During a, a live presentation, during a Zoom presentation, during an interview, Josh, um, during any, any of the situations, conference presentations, whatever we find ourselves in, a lot can happen. And it's the ability to continue and to be resilient. A lot of times in conversations, things happen that we maybe don't foresee, but we feel more able to adapt and to pivot during those than we do in a presentation where there's so much more pressure, where there's so much more investment in who we are. And so I think that idea of just being able to be resilient and being able to pivot really helps a lot. I also know that Stephanie, that this is a real strength of, of yours. Do you have some other tips of ways that we can, because Zoom is going to continue in the future for a while. Do you have some other ways of, as we move forward that we can balance our anxiety with technology? Well, I think one of the most important things to remember is that there are ways, whether we are ready to talk about them or not, as a society, there are ways in which this technology-mediated communication is superior to face-to-face. And going into a speech thinking that I'm already at a disadvantage because it's online is just going to add to your anxiety. For example, Uh, Jeremy Balenson out of the Stanford Virtual Reality Lab does some fabulous work in VR and gaming and instruction and avatars. And he has this concept he calls augmented gaze. And what he's essentially found is that when I am speaking online, if I am looking directly into my webcam, I can give the illusion that I am giving eye contact with every single person on the other side of the screen. Now, compare this to your class, Susie, in which your student was getting marked low because they weren't giving eye contact to half the classroom. You know, online, I can give eye contact, individual eye contact through augmented gauge to an unlimited number of people. And that's something I can't do face to face. So thinking about how the tech can be used well. Another way, the chat feature. Now, people can ask their questions while they're thinking about it, but I, as the speaker, have the autonomy based on whether or not I think I need to make another point before I address questions or whether or not I am feeling mentally prepared to answer questions. I can decide whether I want to answer questions in chat as I go or tell my audience, thank you so much. I'm going to download these all and I will respond to you in an email later. That ability to manage and get questions that span beyond your set amount of time, that's one of the ways that tech can help us. So just dropping that myth that face-to-face is the gold standard of giving presentations and embracing the idea that maybe we have some advantages, pauses an online presentation. I think that's one of the best ways to manage anxiety. I actually love that. And I know um, I've embraced Flipgrid as a way for students to share presentations And I see some real value in that, in that um, they get to learn from one another. 
I tell them to do it, you know, just after a couple of recordings, like record once and then review that and then record, prepare, then record once and either that one or the next one. Some of them have confessed they 10, 12 times and that the anxiety is just going to keep on going. But thankfully, in retrospect, they say, I probably shouldn't have done that. And by the time we get to the second one, they haven't done it as much. But I, I think Flipgrid's a great way that we have taken some of the best parts of live communication opportunities and merged it with tech. And um, the storytelling that students are able to share and the they seem very authentic and genuine in them. And often they'll say, I wasn't as nervous. Or when we do the podcast one, which is no video, they all talk about how much more comfortable they feel because they don't have to worry about the, the visual elements. They're able to concentrate more on their voice and their story and their word choice and the power of pauses and things like that. So these are, again, some scaffolding ways in terms of assignments, but ways that we can harness the energy of the tech and use it to empower us rather to add another layer of anxiety. So Stephanie, thank you because you've been instrumental in my foray into more tech um, because <laughs> of your work with um, technology mediated communication. And so thank you for that very well, much. Thanks for working with me. It's always fun. I think, I think we've done a really great job. And, and on our list, we, we've tackled everything on our list. Um, and I think we've shared some really great stories. Again, I, I feel so humble and blessed to call both of you my friends. And yet I've heard two new stories I've never heard before. So that was just great. So thank you. But as we as we kind of wrap this up, um, do we have any last ideas or any resources or anything that we'd like to share? And Josh, I'll let you go first. Sure. Well, I think the biggest piece of advice I would give for those of us who are, are participating today, who are educators, and uh, those of us uh, students who might be listening as well, is to, to ask for help and, and, and look for resources, right? Because there are a lot available to us. So for those of you who are instructors or teachers who are looking for more resources, I would definitely steer you to the um, educational resources that are available through the National Communication Association uh, website, as well as uh, the uh, Basic Communication Course Annual, which has several published articles related to communication apprehension and public speaking anxiety that I think could be extraordinarily useful. For our students who are listening, uh, one thing that we didn't talk about uh, today that I think is worth mentioning is that while there are techniques that can help you feel better and, and reduce your anxiety, sometimes additional intervention is needed. And so if you feel like you are tackling those, those strategies and you're trying them and not, not seeing any progress, don't hesitate to reach out to your instructor or even to see if you can make an appointment with your campus uh, student health provider um, or counseling center to see if there are additional resources that, that are available to you. And we have a number of students at, at, at our university that work directly, uh, who face public speaking anxiety situations, social anxiety disorder, who work very closely with providers on campus and are able to make great progress because of the assistance that they're able to provide. So again, it's just a matter of seeking out the resources and asking for help as you push ahead. No, you're not alone. And that with a little bit of effort, you can make, you can make strides in, in working and uh, managing your anxiety. Thank you for that, Josh. And I know you've been instrumental on your campus of building those partnerships with the counseling and other 
offices. So thank you for doing that. And I hope that's happening on, on lots of other campuses as well. So thank you. Stephanie, what about you? Well, I'm actually going to pivot my answer because all of the best resources that I believe exist that I constantly give my students are yours. I have them read your chapter in Computer Media Communication for Business Theory to Practice. I have them read your gifts piece on the power of storytelling and how reframing public speaking as stories can lower that anxiety. And I have them take your public speaking anxiety measure so that they can track their progress across time and see how much better they're doing. So since you have authored and created everything that I think is the best reference, Susie, what do you think students should use or professionals should use? This is why you invite friends to your podcast. <laughs> Thank you for that, Stephanie. I, I think the thing I try to say to my students on day one, which I hope they're hearing in every single public speaking class across the country, whether it's face-to-face, -face, hybrid, or online, when they walk into an interview, when they walk into a presentation, is you can do this. Because we walk into those situations feeling so tiny. And, and no matter how much we know, no matter how much we, we write and study, there's always that voice that says something like, other people do it better, or you're not gonna do so well or they can see your anxiety. And that little voice can get really big. And if we go into this situation knowing everyone else is nervous, but we got this and we are gonna succeed, I think that helps a lot. And I think it helps balance the idea that our students come to our classes in or go into an, an interview with. We all know that when we go into an interview, we feel less than empowered. And we tell ourselves we're, we deserve to be there. We deserve a seat at the table. We deserve a chance, but we sometimes don't feel that way. So I think that we can all do this is probably the, the number one thing. And tacked onto that is the anxiety isn't necessarily bad. I know Josh and I have talked about this before too. A little bit of nervousness, a little bit, we should be. And you mentioned this in the beginning, Stephanie, because it means we care. If we totally go into an interview and we're like, I don't care. Or we totally go into a presentation like, I don't even care. If we go to class, we're like, Ugh, I don't care. Then we're not giving our best. The people around us aren't getting to benefit from our best. When we go in and we really want to do well, there should be a little anxiety. There should be a little anxiety when you're playing for the Super Bowl, when you're standing on a free throw line, when you're up at bat, like in Fenway. There should be some excitement. And so we want you to be excited. We just want to help you. And by we, I mean every instructor teaching public speaking, every trainer and business professional, we want to help you channel that energy so that you feel empowered.